0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 30th, 2024 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we begin coverage of California's March 5th primary, a mere five weeks away. I'm feeling additional responsibility in this coverage as I see dwindling coverage of Orange County politics in the area newspaper, the LA Times. So, you know, community has got to keep doing it, keep bringing it. We'll first hear today from California State Senator Dave Min, one of the several candidates I'll be interviewing, running in the California 47th Congressional District, in the seat vacated by incumbent Congresswoman Katie Porter. And in the second segment, and I do believe we're going to have an additional extended portion to hear on the podcast. But in the second segment will be Sean Khalifa, who will be graduating from the UC Systems Lifted Program for felons from the carceral system and sending them off to thriving lives. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is California State Senator Dave Men. He's representing California's 37th State Senate District and he's running as a Democrat in the California 47th Congressional District in the March 5th primary election. This district includes Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Newport, and Seal Beach, and portions of Laguna Beach, Laguna Hills, and Laguna Woods. The district, currently represented by Congresswoman Katie Porter, her vacating the seat now makes this an open race and one of the most competitive congressional races in the country. And therefore, folks, if you live here, like UCI, UCI is right here, you are in a very closely watched race. As covered in previous interviews, I've talked about Dave Min was on the UCI Law School faculty, was an associate director at the Center for American Progress, counsel to the U.S. Senate Joint Economic Committee, an associate at the Wilmer Hill Firm, a staff attorney for the Securities and Exchange Commission. His recent committee appointments, which I understand are soon to be adjusted with the new California State Senate leadership, but the, the committees currently are State Committee on Natural Resources and Water, where he's the chair, Senate Budget and Fiscal Review Committee, Budget Subcommittee Number 1 on Education, Senate Committee on Banking and Financial Institutions, Senate Committee on Energy, Utilities, and Communications, and Senate Judiciary Committee. He comes to us today from Irvine down uh, away from the session up in sacramento we're recording this on friday january 26th welcome back to ask a leader senator david minn
1: thank you for having me claudia
0: well in our brief time together i so encourage you to stay right with these questions so that listeners can truly gauge your potential to represent all of us in congress so first what are or is uh, can be made singular or plural. What's your number one legislative imperatives for you in the U.S. Congress?
1: Oh gosh, uh, there, there's a bunch, but um, you know, in the State Senate, I have been a leader on um, gun violence prevention, uh, on protecting women's reproductive rights, and on climate. And I think that those are the among the issues that I really want to emphasize in Congress. Uh, But also, I think it's really important that at the federal level, we stand up for and bolster our institutions of democracy. Uh, And I can't believe I have to say this, but this is where we are as a country. We have to defend our democracy. We have to defend the integrity of our elections. uh, And we have to defend the rule of law. And it pains me to say that because, as you noted, Uh, I've spent my career in public service. Uh, I I started my career at the Securities and Exchange Commission as a prosecutor right after the Enron WorldCom Accounting Scandals. Uh, I served as a law professor alongside Katie Porter for almost a decade at UCI School of Law. Uh, And, um, you know, I, I always believe fervently that the rule of law is important. It has to be applied to everyone equally. That is a defining principle of the United States of America that has made us the beacon of democracy and Western liberal values for so many generations of immigrants who have been seeking a freer, better life, including my parents who came here in 1971. And I think we also have to, in addition to defending democracy and the rule of law, as an ancillary point, start to take back our federal judiciary. What we are seeing right now is, I think, shocking to most lawyers out there. And you see trickles of this, but When you talk to people who are following what the Supreme Court's doing, following what federal appellate courts and even federal district courts are doing, uh, they are making up law right now on the thinnest of pretenses. They are legislating from the bench. Uh, They are ignoring decades, sometimes centuries of well-settled precedent. They're ignoring the plain text of the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution to come up with their preferred partisan ideological outcomes. And it's impacting our ability, uh, and by our, I mean uh, everybody's ability, to try to effectuate solutions to our problems, whether that's protecting people from gun violence, uh, trying to turn back the tide on climate change, uh, trying to ensure that women's autonomy over their own bodies is protected. Uh, We can pass laws, but what we are facing right now is a court system that is increasingly and increasingly aggressively overturning these on, on just hogwash principles. The and jud- that is uh, something that we're going to have to tackle as well.
0: So the judiciary appointments and the confirmation, that is all in the U.S. Senate. We're going to stay in the lane of the U.S. Congress. Well, and but the there's sh- a
1: lot that Congress can do as well, which is we don't get to control confirmation. But we can start to set the trend uh, on, you know, uh, for example, the funding of the federal judiciary is within the control of Congress. Uh, and, and it's long been discussed that uh, the federal judiciary— Uh, needs to be expanded. It's been operating at minimal levels for a long time, even as the population has grown, even as the number of cases has grown. And so the federal judiciary right now is overwhelmed. Uh, I would certainly support adding more judges, adding more federal appellate judges, and adding more judges to the Supreme Court. I also think that the Supreme Court needs to be bound by a code of ethics that is enforceable. What uh, What we've seen Clarence Thomas accused of, as well as other members of the court, is outrageous being paid by people uh, in the uh, tune of millions of dollars, free trips, cash payments, uh, paying for your kids' tuition to private schools. Uh, that's outrageous when you have people, those same people doing business before your court and then to lie about it and not disclose it, lie about it. Uh, that, that would put any other judge in jail. And, and yet the Supreme Court justices feel like they can do this, and they, they refuse to submit to any kind of ethical code that's binding. And so one of the things I would like to propose, if it's not proposed before I get there, is to reduce the funding of the Supreme Court unless and until they submit to a binding code of ethics, because what they're doing is out of control.
0: So another area, though, that might be uh, that's that's directly related to the judiciary's rulings, the upcoming decision on the Chevron case, that that would <clears throat> perhaps put the U.S. Congress in a position to spell out in more detail how a resource, how a governmental function would be regulated, but doing that in a very uh, bifurcated U.S. legislative body would be very difficult to get those provisions Mm -hmm. agreed upon and passed in the... Mm u.s Congress, so that the Chevron decision, which could deregulate every conceivable governmental function, would be mm-hmm. restored. So you'd have you'd have a lot of a heavy lift to codify a protection against Chevron deregulating absolutely everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and you bring up a great point, Claudia, which is uh, without this is a complicated principle, but not that complicated, which is that historically since 1984, uh, and even well before then, the courts have uh, given deference to administrative findings. So what, like when the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, decides that a particular drug is safe or not safe, you know, courts have said, we, this is your area of expertise, we're going to defer to that. And that that is basically described as Chevron deference. Uh, and what the Supreme Court is poised to potentially do, they have four members that have openly stated they support this position. It's very possible to get a fifth or sixth person to support this as well, is to overturn that deference and have the courts micromanage and microassess each of these decisions made by administrative agencies. So, the, you know, instead of the FDA deciding if a drug is safe, uh, perhaps the courts would decide that. Uh, but that's, by the way, just the first step to their dismantling of federal regulations that protect us, make our markets work more effectively. Uh, The next step they're probably going to look into, if they overturn Chevron, is to then go into the next step, which is to say that Congress cannot, quote-unquote, delegate these functions uh, to agencies, that Congress has to pass individual laws, that if we want a drug to be declared illegal or legal, Congress has to pass that law, not an agency. And you can imagine how impossible that would be to have Congress micromanage these types of decisions uh, for decades, really since the 1920s, 1930s. We have delegated these functions to agencies. Congress has delegated these authorities, uh, and they've been well-established. But as I described earlier, uh, this Supreme Court, a lot of these justices appointed by Trump and and before then uh, by others, uh, they're out of control right now, and they are um, making things up. They're ignoring, again, decades or centuries of well-settled precedent.
0: For those of you who just joined us, my guest is California State Senator Dave Minn, who's running as a Democrat in California 47th Congressional (coughs) District. It's an open race in the March 5th primary. So as chairman of the California State Senate Committee on Natural Resources and Water, you observed how complicated, problematic, and I'm going to quote you, how messed up, end of your quote, water rates are. That's in California. Now in Congress. How would you propose to resolve any of that as the climate crisis deepens and as our Mm -hmm. safe water supply dwindles? Well,
1: look, and I'll just say I want to be realistic here. In the state Senate, I get to chair committees like Natural Resources and Water. I sit, as you pointed out, on some very, very influential committees, budget on the budget subcommittee on education, which handles all of our education funding throughout the state, including for the UC. We're on water too.
0: I, but just to be, uh, I, yes.
1: Yep. Yeah. And, and, and I sit on judiciary, sit on these great committees. Uh, I will not likely be in a position to have great influence on water policy in Congress. Uh, but if you're asking me from scratch what we kind of need to do, uh, we need to start assembling our water rights right now. Uh, because now there's potentially a lot of conflicting water rights, and this goes way back to like the uh, before 1914, and it's because a lot of our property law is based on English common law. If you guys read, read John Locke, you know, and you, you think about how property rights get developed, it all dates back to the old English days, and it's kind of a use as much as you can take, um, first rights, uh, get all of the rights type system we have. So there's a lot of water rights right now. Uh, that exist for different uh, municipalities, for water agencies. But the problem is, as water starts to run out, these rights may not uh, all exist, that they're going to run into each other. So I think step one is we have to actually sort out what the water rights are if water starts to decline. Uh, Step two is we have to invest heavily in water infrastructure, including how we save water, how we recycle water, um, how we collect water. Uh, And and Orange County, by the way, is a leader on all this. Uh, But that's what we're going to have to start doing at the federal level, Uh, and I think that uh, for those who don't know, Irvine Ranch Water District, which serves UCI, is seen as one of the leaders in the world in water recycling and maintenance, and I think we could be a good model for the rest of the country. So so
0: step three, I would like to push you on in terms of there's an opportunity, but the opportunity passed, but it could still be reconsidered than the time remaining in this legislative session in California but how it would also be a measure that could be federally adopted is giving regulators the teeth to administer violations of overdrafting of water rights i mean real teeth that's that is within your reach
1: Congress could do that yeah I, the state legislature the state. we've tried to the state legislature we've tried to do it a couple times now we could do it within the state uh, it might run up into interstate commerce issues uh, without getting too wonky. But, um, you know, we we've tried this last year as chair. I recommended we pass a couple of bills. They did pass out of my committee, uh, but they, they ran into hurdles elsewhere, whether it was in the appropriations committee where a lot of bills die or whether it was on the other side in the state assembly. Uh, but none of the water rights bills that I supported made it all the way through to get signed into law.
0: Okay, I'm pivoting away into a whole new arena, other arena, not a new one. In the, That is the purview of uh. the U.S. Congress. The geopolitical fault line, let's go right through the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson's office. I'd like to know what is your position on aid to Ukraine, and what would your approach be toward bringing more congressional members along toward appropriating this aid?
1: hundred uh, percent support military and uh, as, as well as other assistance and aid to Ukraine. Uh, they have been invaded and brutalized uh, with a horrendous series of war crimes by Russia. And uh, I have supported them from the beginning. Should I be elected to Congress, I will continue supporting them. Uh, But I just want to add that should I get elected, it is likely that we take back Congress. As you pointed out in your opening remarks, this seat is seen as key to taking back the House in in 2024. Uh, Katie won this seat by three points. It's the Republicans' top target. If we can keep it blue, that means it's very likely that we elect Hakeem Jeffries as speaker next year. And I'm proud to have the support of Katie Porter and the Democratic Party as well as uh, so many other Democratic-aligned groups, including uh, Labor, uh, the Labor Federation in California, the AFL-CIO have endorsed my campaign. Sierra Club, California Enviro Voters all endorsed my campaign. Uh, so I'm proud to be the standard-bearer here that is going to take it to uh, you know, Scott Baugh, my likely Republican opponent. Uh, and if I win, that means we're likely to have a Democratic majority. And I think that makes it easier to pass aid to Ukraine. Now, my understanding of the situation is there is a minority of Republicans out in the House that support aid Ukraine, maybe even a majority. But they're being drowned out right now by those who are the loudest and in power, who for some reason seem to have taken a very strongly pro-Putin platform. And I don't understand this. I suspect at the end of the day, when history is told and all the details are told, uh, Perhaps they were uh, bought off. Perhaps they were influenced in un- undue ways, in the ways that we're learning that Donald Trump has been influenced by the Russian government. Um, but that's not my job right now. My job is to get elected. Should I get elected then to work with my new colleagues uh, to do what we can? But I, I, I'm going to tell you right now, a big part of that is just me getting elected and me then casting my vote for Hakeem Jeffries, as speaker.
0: Well, one thing that makes me ask you is when— it's a tall order for people to be following it. I, I, ask everybody all the time: Do you know that March fifth is right around the Do you know what's on your ballot and all kinds of things? And that not just Ukraine, but Gaza and Chi- Taiwan and the Houthis in uh, in the Arabian Sea, all, all over. That all of these colossal catastrophes around the world that and undermining kinds of chaos going on from El Paso, Texas to San Ysidro to Tijuana in in California, that it is a tremendous challenge to get everybody aware of what's at stake, who is the right candidate. So I don't know if you are encountering in your campaigns this kind of exhausted or just sort of resigned not to uh, to participate electorate in the 47th Congressional District?
1: Uh, no, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm feeling like the excitement's picking up. Uh, last year, I was running for this seat. So I announced January last year uh, with the endorsement of Katie Porter and many, many others, uh, including 160 state, federal, and local officials. Um, we have built up momentum since that time. Uh, but I'll tell you, last night I was out at two Democratic clubs in Laguna Beach and Newport Beach. And in Laguna Beach, we had over, well over 100 people show up. In Newport Beach, maybe like 80 people show up. And, and I'll, you know, having been a veteran of Democratic politics here, uh, those are numbers that remind a lot of us of 2018 when we had the blue wave. And I think right now the Republican uh, antics in the House – uh, the threat of Donald Trump and what he is threatening to do to our country, to our democracy, to our basic rights, uh, has got people fired up. And, and I'm starting to feel that excitement again. But what we need, and, and one of the reasons I'm appearing on your show, is we need students to show up. Now, we'd love for them to show up on March 5th. It's my birthday, by the way. We're going to have a kick in oh, birthday wow. party. Um, and birthday party. And I hope some students show up. Uh, but we really, really, really need to show up in November. And a lot of people are saying right now that students, young people are not going to vote. Uh, that's what my pollster tells me. I tell them, you know, we just need to get them, we need to get that to them with the right message. And my message has always been about the future, about our young generations, how we empower them with uh, climate policy that works, with climate justice, how we protect their rights. We endow them with an American theme uh, that, that doesn't seem like a mythological concept to them. Because right now, honestly, Young people graduating from college don't feel like they've got the opportunity. And, and that's a shame because that is what America is known for. So we've got some major challenges uh, for young people, but we need to convince them that we can start to meaningfully address their problems. And that is what my campaign is all about. But at the same time, yeah, the excitement's starting to show up. I really feel it. And, again, young people are the, the last piece of the puzzle here. We need them to show up in November. I hope they show up in March.
0: So the reason I brought all these sort of global catastrophes and others, and I should have mentioned January 6th as a a catastrophe, Uh. the domestic side is, it is a kind of the portfolio of the disorienting disinformation flooding kind of mechanism that originating from some of those international, from, from Russian and other influences that are undermining our democratic system. So it's a, there's a whole through line there and how, as you said, we're, we're gonna get receipts eventually about who in the House of Representatives has been on Team Russia you know, when, I mean, there's so much discussion. So I'd like to know what healthcare measures you're ready to propose in the U.S. Congress that address the whole disparity of delivery of health care for everyone. since we we know from when the affordable care act that that's as good as it could be but it gave everybody in 2018 something to campaign on but what do you have ready to tighten up because there still are people that are falling through the cracks there are senior citizens who cannot pay for the expenses six to $8,000, $10,000 a month in their expenses for where they're residing. There's reproductive health care that has wound down. It's not even available in some states at this point. There is also the matter of long COVID that's confounding the whole already poorly addressed, a poorly built American healthcare system. So what package do you bring to a US congressional bid?
1: Uh, well, let me just start by saying the obvious. Health care is a basic human right. It, in, this, in the 21st century, in 2024, the idea that people should die or go bankrupt or suffer major harm to their future because they, they don't have access to health care or they don't have the right type of health insurance is really an outrageous concept, particularly in a country as wealthy as the United States. Um, and, and I think we should also acknowledge the twin fact that the United States healthcare system is fundamentally broken. Uh, It it costs more. It has worse outcomes than any other first world healthcare delivery system in the world. And and so what we have to do is fix that. And I think Obamacare was a step in the right direction. Uh, I would have loved to see that have a public option. And look, I think the future as, as a lot of people have acknowledged is, is something around the idea of Medicare or Medicare type system for everyone. Um, but in the meantime, how do we expand? You know that that's an aspirational goal. Uh, how do we, in the meantime, get to coverage and in California? I'll point out right now we have about 92% coverage of, of all residents of California, not just citizens but immigrants as well. Uh, and that's the patchwork of uh, private health insurance uh, through the Obamacare uh, exchanges through MediCal. Uh, but we need to do better, and the United States needs to do better. And so I think we start by expanding out Medicare um, to anyone who wants to buy into it as a first step. Uh, We potentially consider expanding out Medicare to certain classes of coverage, maybe lower the age of qualification to Medicare, uh, and and see what we can do to kind of show proof of concept here that that Medicare for all is is a concept that can actually work. Um, You know, at the same time, I talk to like a lot of labor union leaders. who who want to keep their private insurance, so we need to be mindful of that as well. Uh, This is a complicated problem, but it it revolves around the the twin drivers of cost in in this country are health insurance, uh, and we're basically giving a tax over to the HMOs uh, anytime there's any kind of health care provision, and high cost of pharmaceuticals. And we have to deal with those, uh, and they're not easy issues, but there are some solutions out there, And I don't bring anything new to the table because there are already a a massive amount of bills in play right now in Congress. Uh, I'm not suggesting anything new here, uh, but I will be happy to explore and sign on to the bills that that get us closer to those goals.
0: My very last question, State Senator David Minn, how about your health? I... I'm asking for so many people that I have contacted in preparation for the interview. Your constituents are thinking about your commitment to your own sobriety. Tell us what you envision for taking care of Dave men
1: Yeah, and so uh, I, 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 what you're addressing here is the DUI that I got last May. and. Um, I just, for the record, want to say that I've never had any problems with alcohol before that incident. Uh, you can look this up. Uh, I've never had any incidents, that, public, private, uh, never, um, certainly never any encounters with law enforcement. I, I made a very dumb mistake that night. I, I was out later than I normally am. Our car service had ended. I thought I was good to drive, um, and I was not. Um, and, and I just want to apologize again. It was a, a horrible mistake on my part. Uh, But it's one that will never happen again. And and I'll just say for the record that for now I've stopped drinking. And and maybe that will be for the rest of my life. Maybe that will be for the rest of this campaign. Maybe it will be some period. I don't know. Um, But, you know, I've talked to counseling. Uh, You know, I've I've explored the 12-step. I actually went to this 12-step program. And it convinced me I'm not – I don't actually have what you would call a problem with alcohol. I made a mistake. But I don't need that distraction in my life right now. Uh, so uh, you know I'm focused right now on on working out a few times you know a few times a week, uh, trying to stay healthy because I'm out in public a lot, and you can hear from my voice that uh, you know I'm still recovering from a bug I had last month, and it doesn't help that I talk so much every day., uh, but you know, trying to get sleep, trying to hang out with my kids um, who are growing up fast, and my wife Jane Stover, uh, and and do the work that I am privileged to be able to do. Uh, i'm I'm so fortunate to be in a position to represent, the 1.1 million residents of the 37th Senate District, uh, to be able to pass laws that positively impact people, whether around domestic violence, climate, uh, decarbonization, natural space preservation, uh, protecting women's reproductive rights, or so much more. uh, I get to pass laws. And so anytime you you think there ought to be a law, well, I I actually get to act on that. And I would just add that any of your uh, listeners who might have suggestions on laws should reach out to my office, because uh, some of our best ideas come from our constituents. And
0: are there forms um, that they can go to that, as we close uh, here, because I website, know you have to leave?
1: You, yeah, my website. You could just Google is uh, Dave Men, uh, State Senator Dave Men, and uh, I forget the exact address because they make it kind of complicated. But uh, and there is definitely a form there you can uh, use to to reach out to our office. Uh, our phone numbers are also down there, and you can reach uh, out to our staff and either leave a voicemail or uh, email us. And uh, if if no one answers. Uh, But we do take suggestions. Uh, And I'm, by by the way, proud to say that we uh, solved almost 4,000 EDD cases in the last few years. Those are 4,000 families that were able to have food on their tables to pay their rent because of the hard work of the staff in my office. I've I've got an amazing staff. I'm so blessed to be able to do this work. And uh, we'll just say that, you know, uh, as far as my health and and future, uh, don't worry about me. I'm in great shape, uh, feeling great. And, uh, look, I, I hope... Your listeners will understand. I, I made a mistake. I hope they'll forgive me for that, and I hope at the end of the day they'll judge me not based on one mistake in my life, very public mistake, uh, but rather on, on my, the totality of my career in serving the public, on the decisions I've made as a state senator. Um, you know, I, I think I've got a, a a record that matches this district, and I'd be honored to serve the people of the 47th congressional district, uh, and I'm I'm proud to have the trust of Katie Porter, the Democratic Party. Uh, and so many other uh, groups out there and individuals who are supporting us, who've maintained their trust in me, uh, who all have my health in mind as well.
0: I know we don't have any more time left together. I I wanted to hear you say where there's a forum that students could attend, uh, residents of the 47th Congressional District, but they can perhaps see that on your website. Thank you so much for your time today, Senator Dave Min. And
1: Claudia, just to answer that real quickly, we've done a lot of forums. Uh, They're always advertised. Uh, we probably have like 35, 40 uh, different types of community events. Uh, and so people are always invited. Uh, we do advertise those. You can sign up to get updates on our state senate website. Uh, on the political side, if you're interested in learning more about the congressional campaign, my website's just my name, DaveMin, dot You can sign up to get updates. Uh, we're going to be doing town halls. Uh, at this point, the primary is so soon. I don't think we'll be doing any town halls before then. But after the primary, assuming things go the way that everyone expects, I'm sure we'll be doing a lot more of those and would love to see the students at UCI. I would love to do, consider doing an event at, at UCI, which I once, as you mentioned, was a professor at.
0: Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, Senator Min.
1: Thank you, Claudia. Take My, good care.
0: Thank you. My guest was California State Senator Dave Minn, who is running as a Democrat in the California 47th Congressional District March 5th primary election. The district includes Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Newport, and Seal Beach, and portions of Laguna Beach, Laguna Hills, and Laguna Woods. The district is currently represented by Katie Porter. The vote-by-mail ballots are about to appear in our mailboxes. We'll be right back with Sean Khalifa to start his story about how we can think of a carceral safety net being a larger social safety net for us all. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Sean Khalifa, an accomplished individual with a remarkable journey, which is getting some nice coverage. Perhaps some of you have read about it in the Los Angeles Times Daily Pilot. Mine was in Sunday's paper. Facing significant challenges in his early life, Sean's resilience and determination have led him to a series of notable achievements. After graduating with honors as a student of distinction from Southwestern Community College, he's now graduating with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Sociology here at UCI where, as you'll hear, he's deepening his understanding of societal structures and human interaction. Along with his academic endeavors, Sean serves as a project coordinator for the Irvine Valley College Rising Scholars Program. This initiative focuses on removing barriers that system-impacted students may face in their journey towards degrees, transfer opportunities, or employment. We've had faculty and researchers talk about building this program and the remarkable yields. Now we hear from Sean to draw from his personal experiences and enriched academic background to hear what his very unique perspectives work, His deep appreciation for the intricacies of human relationships and the transformative power of storytelling marks him as a versatile and influential figure in his fields. Beyond his roles in academia and community service, Sean has been taking his communication flair to publishing about the school-to-prison pipeline, and its devastating impact on young lives. In his books, I'm going to name them all, California Island, A Mental Health Story, Sean Khalifa Riots, Violence, Drugs, Police, Gangs, Prison, and College, and Baila Solo, Legendario. Sean attests to the idea that individuals are capable of immense growth and transformation, transcending their past challenges. He speaking as a felon. Sean's YouTube channel Academic Row is a channel dedicated to transforming lives through education and personal growth. See the theme we're we're building here? His resilience, academic achievements, and literary endeavors continue to inspire many are why my show title continues to work. Sean joins me live in Studio A. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Sean Khalifa.
2: Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. Well, let's, let's begin in the middle. I mean, I'm tippy around, but I, I don't mean to, but I'm I'm trying to put our emphasis together in this first segment. We will invariably have to conclude at the top of the hour, and we'll, re, we'll adjourn to a studio to record an additional segment. But let's begin in the middle of your story so we can focus on the institutions, how you were a voracious reader, a student in the confines of detention, including solitary confinement. Let's talk about that voracious reading and your, your resilience. You're your trying to make choices different. You've, you've got a much more mature mind now in detention. Then uh, talk about that transition from then to what you're building to where you are right now. Just pick up where you want to take it.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for that opportunity i just have to take, and just for all of our listeners to know, that was an amazing bio introduction. I crafted that myself. Yes, thank you. But I'm no better than anybody else. I'm your neighbor. I'm just like everybody else. You can see me on the street just like you'd see anybody. Not bigger than anybody. I'm still going to pull over and help somebody who's broken down. I'm not too big for our community. We're a group. So I just want everybody to know that because it sounds really amazing. I put it out there that way a lot of times, but I'm just like you. Yeah, so great question, Claudia. I have to take everybody back to Juvenile Hall. In Juvenile Hall, there was a group counselor. His name was Mr. David. And I remember he had been shot in the head with an AK. He was in the Marines. He was on a mission down to, I believe they went to arrest Noriega. If I'm wrong with my facts, I apologize. This was his story and how he told it. He had a dent in his head, and he always said it was from being shot with an AK. So it earned us instant respect. It's like a man that was shot in the head with AK is now a juvenile group counselor functioning and changing our lives. And he handed me my first book to read and he told me it was a college level book. And when I was incarcerated, I had been kicked out of every single classroom from the third grade up until the point I was incarcerated at the age of 15. So when I found myself in juvenile hall, I could barely read and write. And this group counselor gave me a book. He said, hey, this is a college level book. What's the book? Do you remember? The name of the book was The Rape of Nanking. And it was a very tragic uh, story about the Japanese, how they massacred the capital city of China at that time. And the way it was, it was, I don't want to um, shock our listeners with any details, but if you get a chance to read it, it, it is history and you do want to record history and have an understanding. But what it did for me as a kid from California, we grew up with the Rodney King riots. We grew up with our local gang rules and structures. We grew up with police violence. I, as a child, I was dragged out of my bed and threatened by a police officer around the corner of a house. So in Paris, in Paris, California. So we and his, that was Officer Guzman back in the the 90s. So to grow up in California and have these experiences and then be violently incarcerated where you're assaulted, like when officers arrest you as a child, they pat down your private parts and they'll say they're looking for weapons. To me, as an adult, that's child abuse. But as a child, they explain it, and this was the 90s, and we accepted it because we didn't know how to challenge what was happening to us as children. These are things you experience in California. So to read a college-level book about world-shifting behaviors from politics, policies, nations that are really aggressive towards other nations, and see so many women and children be murdered so callously, um, it opened my eyes as a Californian and a child that We don't have it so bad. We live close to Disneyland. Even though we have societal issues, it could be a lot worse. War is a lot worse than what we experience. We do experience trauma and shootings and we're surviving. But on the magnitude of history, we were living in a pretty decent period. So reading that story in Juvenile Hall told me that I could grow up to do something with my life because I was incarcerated in a wealthy nation where... I was being provided three meals a day. I would be provided a bed. I wouldn't say it was safe, but I would say there was an opportunity for growth there. And learning history helped me kind of gather some of that that thought process. And I would like to share that two more influential books that changed the direction I was headed in life was Tookie Williams. Tookie Williams, uh, that he didn't release it until he was executed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I was really disappointed in the governor. He had met him prior to his incarceration, but he still allowed him to be murdered on death row, which was disappointing to us because he was now doing works of good in the world. And if you extinguish somebody doing works of good in the world, you're only serving to perpetuate works of harm and bad. You can't repeat a cycle. Regardless, like Bryan Stevenson said, you're much more in the worst thing you ever done. So Tookie Williams' book, when he released Blue Rage Black Redemption, it taught me the history of Crip, which is a community I grew up learning from the Crips in my community. So understanding the history of that and also reading Monster Cody's uh, book titled Self-Titled Monsters, both from South Central Los Angeles, both had a huge influence on Riverside County in the way we grew up. Now learning that history, they both changed their life. So by the time they wrote their books, they were promoting positivity. They weren't promoting murder. They weren't promoting crime and violence. So seeing people that I didn't understand, I learned our California history, world history, I now knew that I can grow into a leader and not perpetuate violence and still be respected because every one of the individuals uh, I listed prior who wrote books were well-respected and then the historian who wrote that history was well-respected and the counselors who would come and give us these opportunities were well-respected in our eyes. So a lot of that pushed me towards wanting to be a leader and would you like more detail, or would you? Like oh, wait, oh
0: I'm going to get, stay out of your way, but okay. I but I do want to find out when you were writing your your books that are there. Some of them are just as recently published as last last summer. I mean, oh, right. yeah. So I'm just wondering when you're writing those books, are you sort of channeling your
2: yeah.
0: your previous early reading experience and putting that some that kind of intentionality? And I will beat up the word intentionality. I'm going to have to because we're going to keep coming up, but. If that was, you're conscious of how that h- had an impact on you, and you're trying to now bring that to others in yeah. your voice. Is that Correct. is that conscious, or is it you just? No,
2: that's very conscious. I was 19 years old when I arrived at Pelican Bay State Prison, and Tookie Williams, he had been in San Quentin, but the fact that he could get sentenced to life in prison, and and or he was sentenced to death row, and he was deemed no good for society, and he couldn't contribute. He contributed massively. To society, he, he negotiated a peace treaty. He uh, his books were circulating throughout Africa to stop some of the issues they were having in their communities. I read his children's books in juvenile hall along with his work after he was murdered. But um, that's where the intentionality came from. Watching men come before me, they put out a, a work that reached us in juvenile hall that changed our trajectory, regardless if we were getting life in prison or not. So just because I had life in prison didn't mean I couldn't contribute. So when I sat down to write Proposition 21, I was isolated in administrative segregation in Pelican Bay. I initially went to B-yard, which was general population. I found myself on A-yard in Building 1 and 2, which is administrative segregation. And that is where I started writing. Which is
0: that's another word for one step up from solitary.
2: Yeah, that's the transition. It is solitary. Sometimes it's better to be in the official uh, security housing unit, which is the shoe, because you come out an hour a day. A lot of times in administrative segregation, you won't get that hour out a day. That's pretty much the county jail for the prison system. Okay. The shoe would be the actual prison system. They have their own legal system within the prisons. It's a world.
0: So back to that. In, when you were in that particular setting.
2: Yes. When I was in Pelican Bay State Prison, I was in A1 ad seg. You have concrete beds. I had concrete beds in juvenile hall, but these ones felt a little more intense. I was luckily allowed to get a television and they lock your cables to your power outlets television through the chase where the plumbing's at. So they lock my cables there and I'm in here isolated. I spent five months without going to the cages. Your only opportunity to go outside is to a dog kennel. I went to the San Diego zoo and the elephants have cages. That's exactly what our cages look like just scaled down to fit humans. And I was telling my wife, this is shocking. I'm having a flashback of my time in Pelican Bay and Lancaster State Prison. But in Pelican Bay, it took me five minutes, five months to gain the courage to go into that cage. And I started liking it. But leading up to that, I I needed an outlet. And one of my outlets was self-harm. I was experimenting with hurting myself. I was stressed out. I was suffering, suffering from mental health. It was for a 19-year-old to be in the prime of your life, sentenced to life in prison, isolated in Pelican Bay, and being told that wherever you go, you're either going to have to stab somebody or somebody's going to have to stab you, life is really cheap. It does. You know that even the correctional officers aren't safe. They fear for their life, and they treat you, they call you sir as a 19-year-old because they want to be respectful. They don't want to be targeted or have their family targeted, which occurred while I was present. It occurred twice. There was two attacks on them where they were stabbed. And amongst my peers, there was plenty of stabbings. So all of this was going into, uh, that became my vow of my release. I'm now living with a purpose that if I were to die tomorrow, I would have produced a book titled Proposition 21, which could serve as a guide for other youth in California so that they don't have to take these steps that I took. Wow. Okay. So that,
0: and I'm just listening to how uh, it was an accident that your juvenile detention officer put that germ in there but he chose that book he chose you and i did you like move could you move that share that book with other people so that was also a ripple i had to
2: return it to him because there was was restrictions placed upon what material you could read we couldn't read that type of material so we were blessed to build those connections with staff to where they would connect with us and i must attest to mr david who no longer works there he used to feed my father who was homeless he, on his way to work, my father would sleep in front of the Stater Brothers in Paris downtown. And he would say, man, I see your dad on my way to work. I'm like, bro, can you do me a favor? Can you bring him breakfast? He hmm. said, I got you. Well, Took him breakfast, came to work, told me he seen him.
0: So let's get you, let's move through here. Um, when you're talking about your reading material. And then there is a kind, you're creating, a, you're sort of easing into an actual sort of formal education process. Keep just keep moving you through. Now a reversal of the school to to prison pipeline. It's the prison out of prison pop pipeline of education.
2: Correct. So southwestern community college down in San Diego have to show them a lot of gratitude. Their policies ma- makers made the decision that if you're within our service area, we're going to support you regardless of where you are. A so faculty that, member or a that s- was policy. So that was their. Uh, I don't know if it was their deans or board of trustees huh. who made this decision. I was incarcerated when they brought it to us and they told us that because we're in their this was the director of their restorative justice program informed us that because excuse me. So you were I'm going to uh, clarify yeah, too. Please.
0: We we you we were you're earlier talking about your Pelican Bay the detention there and now now, now you're at the forward, Donovan prison in San we, Diego. We now
2: fast forward surviving level 4 security prisons working my way to a level 3 and then they open a brand new level 2 state of the art facility with the intention of providing programs to improve our health because heal people don't hurt people hurt people hurt people so the intention is to heal us here at this facility and transition us into the community regardless of our sense to life or not they're giving us this opportunity I benefited because I had been programming and staying out of trouble. I go here. You're, you're
0: intentionally, you're internally I'm intentionally programming. Out it's of trouble. You, I know that. Your
2: choices. I know that when you go to. Somehow you know. When you were in. Well, you learn. When you're incarcerated as a youth, you get 20 points just for being young. The more points you have, the higher security level you would become. So I got 20 for being young, six for being linked to a gang. And for my uh, 25 years to life sentence, I received 50 points. I ended up with 72 points. Uh, Because it was like minus 4, give or take. So that's how my points worked out, which put me on a level 4, 180 yard initially when I was incarcerated. So you get a Title 15 when you enter the reception center. Your Title 15 is the Bible. It tells you what you can and can't do in prison. There's also a snippet that a warden could send you home if he chose to. So learning this you know that there's potential to come home even regardless of your sense of life in prison because you read the rule book. Everybody gets it. Do you get keep, gets it? It. Do you keep a physical it. copy? You keep it and you get a new one every single year. Oh, as really? It's updated and revised. Do you have one now? I do not, but I, have to relinquish I know it. people who have some. Okay, <laughs> okay. So I, I read this book. I knew what I couldn't couldn't do. I knew that I could drop points. I knew I couldn't go below a level three, but as time went on, they changed that rule. I could go now go down to a level two as a lifer, which was great. So I end up on my level two. Uh, the college comes in because somebody at that college made a choice, whether it was a group or one person, that they would serve everybody in their district. So now they're they're treating us as potential college students because we're within their district, even though we're in a state prison. They, the Southwestern Community College. That is Southwestern people. Community College District down in South San Diego. Something got Chilabista. them onto that.
0: I just want to know how this stuff starts.
2: Yeah. we got to get to the seminal we can, stories. We can get to those. So- they bring college they come around with a sign up sheet AA degree i I got my high school diploma in juvenile hall i never had access to college until this level two facility so now that i had access i enroll i take a sociology class the professor comes in and he blows our minds because he challenges societal norms without being deemed a communist without being deemed a socialist even as a sociologist he's able to factually lay out history and challenge what conditions contribute to mass incarceration? What conditions contribute to crime occurring in our community? And being able to learn from this professor motivated us that we could do it and not be ostracized or demonized.
0: And we'll talk about those conditions in the part two, the yeah. resumption Don't of this worries. interview, because I, I know people want more details. Yeah. But I'm really about how this transition is occurring and these institutions, because, we you know, we're going to celebrate in a way of the you're completing your degree in the system and I and I just want to as I bleed out all these th- thoughts here because <laughs> there's a lot to process at once but it's the the irony of the major in the UC system program is it's sociology and there, there's reasons that are there's some logistics you can't have every single major because of the kinds of educational materials you can't have a a, a bioscience lab you can so sociology is something that can work and in there but
2: that was changed initially it was communications but no, the college right, right. deemed that a, so, but, a sociology degree would be more useful
0: but now in the state of florida the state is now removing sociology as one of the core curricula in the undergraduate program. So like one state giveth and the other state taketh away. So I just want, this is the difference between the states. So yeah. back to, to you're talking about this.
2: Yeah. So there's always going to be the ebb and flow and you need to take advantage when you have the flow towards positivity and reintegration and programs because there will be a time where California shifts back. Unfortunately, we've seen it since the 70s. I've only been around since the 80s, but listening to people that are older than me, you've seen a period of tough on crime and a period of, letting people come home and program, and then you've seen it shift back. We want to get an ideal system, but just so you know that, uh, I see Florida doing that. Hopefully, they'll undo it eventually, and we're getting it, so take advantage while we have it. So our program, it was intentional on the college part to give us a sociology degree versus a communications degree. One of the way that benefits lifers is that you can now understand some of the factors that contributed to your incarceration because in order to come home as a lifer, if you have a chance to appear In front of the parole board is you need to learn your childhood traumas you need to learn causative factors you need to understand in depth what led you to commit a murder or commit a crime which resulted in life because some of our peers have 100 years to life who didn't lay a finger on anybody intentionally but still received the three likes the three strikes conviction which resulted in their life sentence so college comes i pursue the aa degree i'm successful i'm halfway to my associate's degree i'm maintaining the 4.0 And the felony murder uh, rule was changed thanks to SB 1437. And that was bipartisan Republican Democrat in the California Senate, I believe. They pushed it through. They passed it. Thank God for that. That allowed me to be resentenced to first-degree robbery, receive a nine-year sentence, time served. I had served a total of 16 years in state prison, but I was resentenced to nine years. Still had to serve a three-year parole. I wasn't mad because there was a difference between doing life in prison for first-degree murder or coming home since to nine years. And upon release, I continued with my education. One of the biggest reasons I did so was parole mandated that I return homeless to Riverside County. No longer had family there. No longer uh, communicated with my community where I came from. I could have made that choice. I was well regarded in the community. People seen me in a, a decent light where I could have been accepted and went back to sleeping on somebody's couch, potentially doing things that could have increased my chances of recidivism, or just stay homeless in Riverside in the city, which is what my parole officer expected. But I reached out to the college program. I said, hey, I'm halfway to my degree. I wanna continue with the college. They connected me to somebody who was connected to housing, secured me housing in San Diego, secured my enrollment. My parole officer agreed to let me transfer to San Diego. But just to be clear, When someone comes home from an institution, parole and probation often put conditions that will increase recidivism, such as mandating that you have to be homeless because you can't leave the county or mandating that you can't go see your family in another county. And for a child who is 15 years old and getting out at 31, nothing was going to keep me from my mother. So day one, I'm already violating parole, even though I got this major break. And that's a thing that probation and parole are forcing upon us. And college is one of the things that is fighting that recidivism rate because if I didn't have higher ed, the chances of me reoffending would have been high. I was now allowed to go to San Diego County and find success in higher ed. I was out of the prison and I was navigating uh, the community in San Diego where I found a ton of success, ultimately graduate, transfer to Go ahead. We could pick up. So up what more.
0: we're going to do, we're going to talk about more of the transition and some of and, and the background, the the what was the the perpetration there in uh, um, in Paris and all that. So the overarching theme we'll also pick up is re- continue is the choosing rehabilitation over punitive measures in the carceral setting. So I, for now, Sean, I want to thank you so much thank for you. being on Ask a Leader today.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate for having me, Claudia.
0: So my guest was Sean Khalifa student with the Underground Scholars program at UCI and he'll be graduating this summer with a sociology major a bachelor's of arts and he is talking about how this incarcerated program aims to help incarcerated and former incarcerated students accomplish higher goals. We'll be taking up next week California State Senator Josh Newman will be running in our newly drawn Senate District 37 and then 47th Congressional District candidate Joanna Weiss will be on. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.